0: I don't know about you, but was that worship not awesome, those first three songs? Well wow. The author of that last song, Brooke, was it Latherwood? how you say it? She sang that song at Passion three years ago. She'd just written it. And she said, I want to play this song for you, and uh, I want to see what you think. And it was just uh, her on the top of a piano, and the lights were shining, and we got 70,000 people watching her. She plays this and she gets to the end of it, and the whole place is silent. We didn't know how to even react to something that powerful. This scripture I'm about to read, I think, has the same, even so much more weight, a cosmic, eternal weight, written in the second chapter of book of Acts. One you know well, but it has certainly changed my life. It is written to the church. All the believers devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to fellowship, to the sharing of meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and, and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. And they, they sold their property and their possessions, and they shared the money with those that were in need, and they worshiped together at the temple each day. They also met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they, they shared meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people in each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. This uh, series I began back several months ago called "Kingdom Come." Each week, we're looking at the idea and uh, exploring that part of the prayer in the Lord's Prayer where we pray, "Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven," and asking, "What does that mean to live out?" the kingdom of God here on this earth. And this is really one of the grand themes of Scripture. We see this this dichotomy take place over and over and over again, whether it's in the Old Testament or certainly we find in the New Testament and absolutely in the book of Acts, this idea of the city of God versus the city of man. And I want to give a little history to this. Back in the year 410, so we're what, you know, 1,600 years when the Germanic tribes invaded Rome, the, Rome had not been invaded or sacked in nearly 800 years. It was unthinkable to people that this could have happened. I mean, the only equivalent I can say is imagine this week, if an entire country you know, invaded in America, how shocked we would be. That was the shock that people felt back at that time. And... There were all kinds of reasons for this. And Augustine, who I think is one of the greatest writers in history, one of the greatest Christians in history, wrote a book. I want to put it up here called The City of God. I think it's his greatest work he's ever done. And he wrote a lot of great stuff. But in the, in the book, he tells why Rome fell. And he gives a description that there are two cities, two waves, two paths of life that people will follow, two cities. And each one of them go in the opposite direction, And I'll put the next one here. There it is, the city of God versus the city of man. The city of God, or the city of man, is an earthly city. It's built around man's desires, man's wants, man's pleasures. And it's built around almost the entire idea, what will bring me the most happiness, the most pleasure? And Augustine says many times, governments will build their entire existence on that idea. What will bring me the most pleasure and the most happiness? And the people the residents of the city of man will really live their lives in such a way that live in the present and passing world without thinking about the next. But then Augustine goes into great, gosh, he's such a good writer, to great detail about the city of God and the residents of the city of God and those that one day will be in the city of God. And that city is built around the entire idea of the love of God and the love of thy neighbor and the love of each other. And it's never built on selfishness or advancing one's goals, but it's about penitence. It's about sacrifice. It's about loving people beyond what people from the, the, you know, the kingdom of man can live like. It puts a, an idea of just what we can be like, Augustine writes. And Augustine argued that Christians should always, always, our true allegiance lies there in the city of God. That's, when a push comes to shove, that's where it's always going to lie, the city of God, not the city of man. Why we are, by the way, he says, why we also reside in the city of man, knowing we're keeping our eyes constantly on the city of God. So he goes and he says, and I think this is right, this is where I'm going this morning, we should be the best residents, temporary residents, living in the city of man, always knowing where we are going, and that is the city of God. And he says, we're citizens of the city that has come, while residents in the city that is. And therefore, he says, you have these two different cities, these two different ways, these two different lives. And he said, Christians should not be shocked, okay? When people... From the city of man, resist people from the city of God. We're living in a completely different world, an alternate city, an alternate society, practicing and experience and feeling and captivated and electrified of just what the city of God is going to be like. So in a, real, in a real sense, this is the setting that Luke wrote into about the early church. So Augustine wrote about it 400 years later. Luke writes about it right now. What did the people in the city of God, what did they look like? What were they doing? And I think some background here is, is needed here. That passage I just read, this was a, a sermon that the apostle Peter had just preached. And we know the word says at that time there were about 120 believers. And Peter gets up and preaches to all the residents of the city of man and begins to talk about the city of God, and it says at the end of his preaching, 3,000 people came to Christ. <laughs> Can you imagine? You talk about church growth, man. 120 to 3,120. I mean, Billy Graham would take notice about that kind of conversion right there. Now, many theologians have argued this is the day the church began. This is the day the church was born. Whether we think that is true or not, the really point is: What did they do directly after that? How did these early believers begin to live? How did they begin to be the best residents living in the city of man, knowing that their true identity was found in the city of God? And it says it here. And I think the key to this is found in the very first part of verse 42. Let me put it up here where it says, "All the believers devoted themselves." They devoted themselves. Now, the question is, what were they devoting themselves to? And they devoted themselves to two things, and that is giving themselves to God and their love for their neighbor. Giving their heart, loving God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving their neighbor as themselves. And they were, in many ways, created in an alternate city within the city. And let me put the passage here. It says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and they devoted themselves there to prayer. They did four things that I think we can put into three categories. And this is kind of churchmanship 101. I made this bite-sized and edible years ago for me to understand. So I hope you understand this. And that is, what were, these, what were the four things that they put into three categories? This is the, the, what I call the three L's of the church. Learning, loving, and liturgy. All found here in this passage. What was the learning? It says that right there in the beginning, all the believers devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. And what were the apostles' teaching? They were teaching directly what they learned from Jesus Christ. His truth, these eternal truths that now echo through eternity. And many people have argued, and I, I think erroneously many Christians have said this. If you, we, I've certainly said this over the years and I was corrected rightly, and that is that if we ask, what is the church's main goal? And a lot of people say it's to convert people. That's not our main goal. The Holy Spirit converts people. We are called to disciple people because this is the language of discipleship. And just in case you think I'm making some wrong art, put the scripture up here. Therefore, Jesus says, Go and make disciples hmm, of all nations, teaching them to obey just some of what I've taught. He doesn't say that, does he? Of everything, everything I've commanded you. And there's a lot there. And what Jesus taught and what the apostles begin to pass on, what they've written in this book, are truths that are so great and so eternal that they really will last forever. And just here's a homework assignment for you this week. If you want some homework this week, just do this. Just go read Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. And then just try to go and live that out. Those, those truths that Jesus taught. And just how radical and how far-reaching and how great these truths were. And let me, just give you, let me just give you one of these. Okay, How different this must have been. Uh, when Jesus talks about, I want you to forgive your enemy. Seriously? See, we've heard this. And we've, this has been preached for centuries. Imagine hearing this for the first time in the Greco-Roman Empire. Forgiving people who violated you. And let me take this even a step further. Let's just say you can say, okay... I forgive you. He also says, I want you to go and be reconciled with people. Now, that's a whole other thing. I, I feel like I'm losing my mic here. Can you hear me now? All right, good. Uh, it's one thing to forgive people. It's a whole other thing to be, go and be reconciled to them. And yet we see this is a mark of the early church, that we see this in every place, in every part of society. People continue to seek out and be reconciled to those Who they feel like they hurt or they hurt those people hurt them. No other religion had ever talked like this before. No society had ever talked like this before. And this captured the heart of these early believers. The other thing we know that they devoted themselves to was the to the love of the poor. They seemed to have a real, it wasn't like other religions didn't talk about the poor, but not to this level, not with this kind of energy coming out from these early believers. They sought out the poor. They loved the poor. They welcomed the poor in. That was unprecedented at at this time. But perhaps over all these things, because, by the way, it was out of this spirit, of the sacrificial spirit of these Christians, this is where hospitals were born. This is where orphanages were born. They, They all came from this idea. But over all this, the umbrella over all this, and this is truly the sacrificial spirit of these early believers there in the book of Acts was they began to promote an idea that had never really been talked about in world history, and that is the universal idea of human rights, of the imago Day. That is that every single human being has been made and has the stamp of God on them, which means they matter, which means they carry intrinsic value, which means they have a purpose. Up to this point, the only people that matter were people who had money, or people who had power, or people who were educated, and along comes Jesus Christ and begins to tell you that every single person matters. All the way from the elderly down to the unborn, and everybody in between. This was so radical during this day. People never heard anybody talk like this before. And what you know, what we know these early believers captured, they learned this right from Christ. In Jesus Christ, the circle of life will always expand and get wider and wider to begin to protect more and more people. The city of man constricts. It gets smaller and smaller and smaller. But these early Christians believed and respecting the dignity of every single human being, regardless of what they believed, what, they believed what those people believed. They believed this. They devoted themselves to this, these early believers. They devoted themselves to these teachings of Christ that were hopelessly out of date, that did nothing but change the world. That's what they devoted themselves to. They also, secondly, devoted themselves here, it says, to the loving. And that is, how were they loving? They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, I want to add something here because I think Many of us as Christians living in this country, we have a a different idea of what we think fellowship actually is, what they're talking about here. Fellowship is not just um, cookies and punch in the fellowship hall, okay? What they are talking about here, what they are doing here is so much more intimate, so much deeper, so much more radical so much more sacrificial. That's what the fellowship they're talking about here. And what we know scripture has taught us is God has made us in such a way that we cannot enjoy, uh, we cannot enjoy joy unless we have one another. So one day when we're in the city of God, we're not going to just be, be there by ourselves. We're going to be surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses and all those who've gone before us that we long to see again. God made us in such a way that we cannot enjoy paradise unless we're with each other. And look what it says here. They worshiped together at the temple each day, and they met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared meals with great joy and great generosity. (laughs) Now, I love these people. They like to eat, okay? (laughs) That is a great thing. If you read about the city of God and you read about in Revelation get the very end of Revelation, you read these prophetic passages in Isaiah and Daniel, it all talks about us feasting in the city of God. Well, they were practicing this. We're going to get good at this before we're on the other side, okay? And what happened was is, that they, is they began to break bread with one another, and that's the thing that's so remarkable about them, every creed, every class every economic level, every education level flocked to these homes. It didn't matter because what brought them together, what united them was Jesus Christ. That's what brought them together and they broke bread over it and they shared meals with one another with great joy and great generosity. And this developed a fellowship. Fellowship means uh, walking with people when they are experiencing the cruelness of life. Fellowship means celebrating also with people just this last year I can think about this. Celebrating with people who find out, a couple finds out they're pregnant for the first time. And just how exciting that is. As you know, they're going to welcome a, a baby in the world. Just, just, you're just so excited for them. It's also in the same week crying with somebody who's experiencing infertility. Fellowship is celebrating when someone gets a promotion to a job or they get a new job and, they, and they're getting paid more and it's just exciting for them while also sitting next to somebody and praying over them when they're telling you they're in a job and they cannot get out of it and they just, it's miserable for them and yet they feel trapped. Fellowship is the ability to be able to share the truth with somebody, Okay. And they can share the truth with you without fear of us withdrawing fellowship if they say something we don't like. Which is, by the way, a symptom of our culture. I will fellowship with you as long as you say what I want to hear. True fellowship is I don't have to worry about you withdrawing friendship if I say something that's idiotic, and and vice versa. I am with you to the end. That's what these, these early believers devoted themselves to, that idea. Because I tell you what, you know what? being sad is really hard, but you know what's worse than being sad? Being alone and sad. These early believers devoted themselves to this deep, deep, intimate fellowship. Why do you think we're talking about small groups so much here? It's this very idea here. No, nobody's an island. Nobody can make it alone. And the byproduct of this, the discipleship, is a real deep and intimate love here. That the gospel will just send us not only deeper into Christ, but I now know it sends us deeper into one another, to each other, into a hurting world. So there's learning, there's loving, and lastly up here, there's liturgy. Liturgy. The work of the people. These last two things. They devoted themselves, what? To sharing in meals, we just talked about that, and to the, basically here the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Now, why did they put this in here? I find this remarkable. And it's amazing how much, how compact this is and how much is in this little passage here. It tells us that they were constantly celebrating the Lord's Supper together, which means they never forgot what it cost to bring them home. What it cost to bring them into God's family. What it cost to bring them into the city of God. And that is nothing short than the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. They never forgot that. That the love of God is sent Jesus Christ to the cross is the same love of God that raised him from the dead. And I might even add here what I find remarkable here, no matter what background people came out of, this is the thing that I wish I could go in detail here, but just reading the testimonies of these people, these early believers, who were pulled off the trash heap and given a new life that Christ directed. And they found a place. They found a meaning. They found a purpose, that Christ washed whatever it did in the past, it didn't matter how bad it was. Christ washed them clean. And what I want you to know today, that is still true 2,000 years later. I don't care what you've done, how you come in here, the only stories that matter are not the ones in the past. The only story that matters is born of His grace and washed and written in His blood. That is the only story that matters. So they devoted themselves to this idea breaking of the Lord's bread. And lastly, to prayer, to prayer. Not something that comes easy for a lot of us, okay? I'm not even asked for a show of hands here, okay? So, but here's what I will tell you this, someone who's struggled with this. I've just noticed that just in the last year or two that uh, you know how your prayer life will increase? This really is, it's amazing this passes here. When you spend time with people and you fellowship with people and they begin to share what's on their hearts, your prayer life automatically increases. It has to. Uh, You know, so an example is, like, on Thursday nights, uh, I'm meeting with a group of young adults. Almost everybody's in their their 20s and 30s. I'm the oldest guy in there by 25 years, okay? And and just two weeks ago, we had a discussion about good music, okay? And I'm like, they're like, 80s music? What are you talking about? Like, I said, have you not heard of U2, R.E.M.? who's REM? What? And they begin to share their music with me. I'm like, now that music is nothing but garbage, okay? Let me tell you some, <laughs> but it led to a deeper discussion, and it has for months now, what's, what's really going on behind their lives, and we are now keeping the notepad of each other of what we're going through and what we can be praying for about. That would not have happened if we weren't getting into real fellowship and studying what the apostles wrote down and the breaking of bread, sharing meals of one another. I wanna close with this idea. Uh, We have a very, very old letter written, gosh, 1800 years ago. The, The author is somewhat of a mystery. There's been a lot of ink spilled on this. A lot of people have written about this, about who it was. But what he wrote I find absolutely fascinating. Uh, what most scholars believe is there was a man who was associated with the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. So if you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, remember when the Richard Harris plays Marcus Aurelius? Aurelius could not figure out why Christianity was growing so quickly. He, it just didn't make any sense to him because he's very much the city of man. And he's looking at these, other, these Christians and he's like, first of all, they don't have any money, they have no political power, they have no education, and yet it's spreading like wildfire, why? I do not understand this. I do not understand what's happening here. And so the man who was his tutor when he was younger goes and spends time with Christians, we believe, and he writes a letter back to Marcus realist explaining why Christianity is spreading so quickly. And you talk about capturing what the church believed and what it taught. Listen to this. I want to just walk through this slowly here. Christians, let me put it up here. Christians pass their lives here on earth, but look where it says their citizenship lies. In heaven, the city of God. They live on their own land, And yet, they live as aliens. They live as foreigners. They share a common table, but they do not share a common bed. Now, what what he means by that is that Christians opened their homes. They had incredible generosity. It didn't matter what you believed they brought. It was a common table that brought everybody and all the common people in. So they were incredibly generous with what they had. But look what it says here. But they did not share a common bed, meaning they had a very, very high sexual ethic. Meaning you were not sleeping with somebody unless you were married to that person. You think, I cannot imagine how foreign this was back at that time. About as foreign as it is now. Okay. So they were generous with their belongings and stingy with their bodies. They shared a common table, but they did not share a common bed. They love all people, and yet they seem to be hated by all people. They are treated outrageously, and yet they behave respectfully. That is missing among the church. If we are not treated right, we act outrageous sometimes. When they do good, they are attacked. And when they are attacked, they do good. They obey the prescribed laws, and yet at the same time, they surpass those laws by how they conduct their lives. They are short of everything, and yet they seem to have plenty of everything. So Diognetus writes, it really is, at the end, this is why Christianity is spreading. These beliefs, these ideas that come straight from this book This should be exactly after what they were after. We should be the same thing. Learning, loving, and liturgy. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as a people of God this morning as we come, uh, as a common people here to sing of your great love for us, Lord. We pray this morning that we may, again, recapture the sacrificial spirit of those early believers who devoted themselves to these truths of eternity that have now changed the world and echoed down through eternity. We pray this morning, Lord, that we once again, as we leave here out into the world, the city of man, we may be the best residents of this city, knowing where our true citizenship lies. Help us, Lord, to continue to love you with everything we have, that we may devote our lives to you in such a way that people may see the light you put in us and glorify you in heaven. It's in your name we ask and pray these things. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.